Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Paul Juris, and I'm here with my dear friend, Gregory Gordon. And, and PJ, actually, we have a third uh, co-host who pro- I hope won't be... Uh won't make his presence known too much in this podcast. And who my might that be? My newly adopted dog. The dog. My newly adopted dog, Django, is sitting next to me. And hopefully he'll only be, uh, you know, uh, uh, emotional support for me while we do this podcast. Well, you know, uh, those of us who need emotional support dogs might really appreciate that. Uh, my dog was a pain in the neck last time and she was barking up a storm and Fortunately, I have very good editing skills, and so I managed to keep her out of the conversation. But who knows? You know, anything can happen. That's the great thing about this. That's exactly. So, you know, we are talking about skill. And coincidentally, just the other day, relative to the uh, recording of this episode, the Baseball Writers of America elected their members into the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's right. So this is a very interesting week, and there are some notable things. First of all, David Ortiz, Big Poppy, made it in on his first ballot, which is amazing, right? And Yeah, and PJ, let's not assume everyone knows the significance of making it in on the first ballot. So for those that don't know... Very few people that have made it to the Hall of Fame have made it on the first ballot. Typically, it takes several years of your name being elected, That's and right. then finally you get in. So first ballot is reserved for people, Derek Jeter, I know, is one of them, Mariano Rivera, and I'm not sure who else, frankly. So you happen to pick two Yankees. And, and as I was thinking about David Ortiz, I was saying, you know what? Even if you're a Yankee fan, you have to love Big Poppy you know, who played for the Boston Red Sox, there couldn't respect there couldn't respect. be a finer player or better ambassador of the game and a great person. So congratulations to him. And mm-hmm. sort of on the flip side of that coin, also notable were those people who were left out. And in this case, mm-hmm. they didn't make it on the last ballot. Right. So who do you think they are? 
Well, if I had to guess, that would be one Mr. Barry Bonds and one Mr. Roger Clemens. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens were once again left out. And, you know, what do you make of that, Gigi? Well, so I think this is a really interesting discussion. Um, and PJ, you and I have had this discussion off the record. So um, I'm interested in having it now on the record. So for me... Um, Look, I if you read the if you read the fine print, pun intended, mm -hmm. um, you know you have to come away with the reason these guys have been shut out is you know there's some degree of evidence, but it's certainly a lot of innuendo regarding Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens both dabbling in illegal performance enhancement supplements, most notably steroids, and Barry Bonds specifically laced to the Balco case. That's right. Uh, Victor Conti's lab about what a. 20 years ago or so. That's right. So, look, a lot of times people conflate the arguments of steroids and what the physical dangers may be and how that might influence younger athletes, high school kids to use it, and that's certainly a reasonable argument, but I'm going to parse that for the purpose of this conversation. So that's a totally different thing. If I was a writer, I think I would actually vote for both uh, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds because I, I think... And it, look, I have no proof or no evidence, but I do feel like they had the skill and um, they demonstrated over a long enough period of time that they were Hall of Fame worthy players to me. Well, the whole question is whether steroids impact skill. And that's the relationship that this story has to our uh, season of discussions on skill. I happen to differ with you. I think that steroids can impact skill. I think the things that you were talking about were longevity, maybe health risks associated with it. Those are separate issues. But you know what? At the end of the day, Gigi, this is something that is really worthy of its own episode. And I think we need to come Definitely. back and uh, get into that and maybe bring some other people on to talk about it because there are lots of perspectives on this and don't want to dwell on it here because... Today, we want to continue the conversation that we've been having about skill. It started with the notion of efficiency in, and our episode, Center of Attention, which we talked about the positioning in the center of mass and movement efficiency. Our last episode, if our listeners caught it, was a video episode, actually, in which we, act, we shared some science, we shared some illustrations, an actual biomechanical models of what happens when you do lunges in different ways uh, that can make it either more or less efficient. And here now mm -hmm. we're going to continue the conversation. We were focusing on lunges. And the reason that we took on that particular exercise in those episodes was because I'm talking to trainers and I asked them, why is the 90-90 position in the lunge the commonly accepted version? And the answer that I always get is, it's sheer stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so don't you know? Wow. Well, yes, this is, um, this is the response that I get. I'm humbled every time wow. I get that response. <laughs> so the question is, like, where did this come from? Wait, what What is this fear of shear that has emerged? And, you know, let's talk about it. Yeah, well, I'm glad we're going to talk about it because, um, you know, when we put an episode together, so there's a combination 
of data that I pull. So I'll go to PubMed and try to pull some papers. I'll go on social media and just see if I type in, you know, lunge and just see kind of what the conversations are on social media. I'll do basic Google searches. So um, this conversation, we're going to pull a paper. Um, that's from several years ago. Um, but this conversation is still happening. And if anyone, you know, you want to find out for yourself, just Google lunge shear and you know, on both sides of the coin, I was reading a blog by a physical therapist who actually um, probably thinks more in line with how we think, but we'll get to that later in the episode. Mm -hmm. But she, the whole point of her blog was it was dedicated to other physical therapists saying, hey, like we've got to rethink our fear of shear, so to speak, that th this conversation is still a really controversial topic in terms of shear on the knee and including or excluding specific exercises based solely on that force. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the paper that we're going to talk about today is, in my opinion, it's the one that, you know, launched this whole movement. You know, back in the late 80s, uh, I never even thought about it. And no one was ever talking about it. And then all of a sudden, this paper came out in 1993. And when you say we're still talking about it, this paper <laughs> came out in 1993. And here we are still yeah. talking about it, which is really amazing. Yeah. But yeah. this was a paper that was done by a guy named Greg Lutz. And I remember this specifically because I was working in orthopedic medicine at the time. And we were at an AAOS meeting, which is the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And at the meeting, there was a presentation of this paper, and it sent everybody into a tizzy. And from that moment on, it's sort of like this whole thing around shear, in particular, the difference between what they're calling closed chain and open chain exercises and note mm -hmm. that I said that they are calling them <laughs> right. closed chain. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But it was that paper which kind of launched this movement against open chain exercises and their, their risk and the stress that they placed on the system and why we shouldn't do it. This was by Lutz and colleagues, 1993, it's called a comparison of tibiofemoral joint forces during open kinetic chain and closed kinetic chain exercises. And this was published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. The reference is in our show notes, and we are going to get into that. Um, what we normally do, and this is what we've been doing with the fine print episodes, is we're going to get into the abstract, we're going to talk about what they did, what they found, jump right to the conclusion, because that's what most people read and follow, and then, of course, we'll start to get into the paper itself. So how does that sound? Cool. Let's do it. All right. So let's start with the purpose of the study. The purpose of this study was to analyze tibiofemoral joint forces those being shear and compression during open and closed kinetic chain exercises. Right. So they were, so again, let's look at it from their perspective. These are people working in rehab medicine at the Mayo Clinic. And what they're seeing is that patients that recently injured their ACL or at ACL reconstruction surgery, the most common complaint was um, patellofemoral joint pain after that surgery. And we should all keep, also keep in mind in 1993, 
I don't know, PJ, when were the first commercial knee extensions available? Late 60s, 70s? Oh, knee extension machines? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they weren't around for, you know, it's not like they had 50 years of knee extension well, the, machine the first, literature. No, the first one that, that I'm aware of was probably the Universal. And it was a combination leg extension, leg curl. It was just a flat bench. And on the end, there was a little axis and you mm. could either oh, sit yeah. on it or, right. or lay prone on it and you can do it that way. So gee, that thing goes back to the late seventies, early eighties. And then they broke okay. it apart and they made a seated leg extension and a prone hamstring curl. Uh, but yeah, so Universal Gym's probably the first one I'm aware of. And then of course, Nautilus came out after that and created mm-hmm. theirs. But point being, there wasn't a, a, a tremendous literature on knee extension machines prior to 1993. So no. what they were seeing is that at angles greater than 30 degrees of knee flexion, it was causing pain. So what they found is that if you try to work on strengthening the knee, so basically from your knee being straight to 30 degrees of knee flexion, that it actually helped reduce the pain. But the paradox is that while you did that exercise, bringing your knee from 30 degrees to zero degree puts greater strain on the ACL. And that was a major concern for them. So that's true. So the paradox is in order to minimize patellofemoral compressive loading and, and joint pain, patellar pain, you need to avoid those deeper ranges of motion. So you want to stop flexing at around 30 degrees. But to your point, during that terminal range, at least according to the authors, uh, that put tremendous, now I'm going to take a little bit of a distinction and, and use semantics a little bit here. Yeah. That puts a lot of stress on the ACL. Mm-hmm. So technically speaking, and these terms are often conflated, and I think it's important that we understand the difference. Stress is load. Stress is pressure. Stress is tension. And that can be very significant. It becomes strain when the tissues actually deform. So when you cause damage to the tissues, now the tissues have undergone strain. But when we're talking just about loads applied to the tissues, we refer to stress. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing, and it's important that we distinguish between these because they are suggesting potentially in this paper, and we'll get into it, that doing leg extensions from zero to 30 degrees causes strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely causes stress, but mm-hmm. we need to understand that stress does not always lead to strain. And, and that's part of the conversation that we have to have with this. Okay, well, well said. Okay, so the purpose of the study was to look at these two forces acting on the knee joint, shear and compression. Now, let's understand what shear is. Shear is when we have surfaces that are moving in opposition to one another. So as Mm -hmm. it relates to the knee, there's an anterior shear and a posterior shear. And in this paper, they talk about posterior shearing forces, and that is basically the, the kind of force that's putting stress and tension on the ACL. That's what they're measuring. So the compression force is the load between the femur and the tibia, which is more of an axial Mm -hmm. load. That contributes to the production or minimization of shear, but we're not really going to address that so much as we are just focusing on the shear elements here. Yeah, as that was uh, a major priority of, of these authors. That's right. And so what they're trying to do 
And it seems like what they're trying to do is to <laughs> suggest that, yes, moving through this terminal range is better for the patella, but it's a lot worse for the ACL. And it's their intent to document the amount of shear that's occurring in order to show everybody just how noxious this force can be. And mm -hmm. so that's the purpose of the study. So here, let's get into the methods a little bit. And this can all yeah. be found in the abstract of the paper. They had five subjects, four men and one woman, 29 years average age and averaging 77 kilograms and 178 centimeters in height. So here's what they did. They were doing maximum isometric contractions and they did it at 30, 60, and 90 degrees of knee flexion. So imagine isometric, remember we're not moving, these are stable fixed positions, contracting the muscles as hard as possible under those conditions. Mm -hmm. When the knee is bent to 30 degrees, to 60 degrees, and 90 degrees, and they did it in both an open kinetic chain and a closed kinetic chain model, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. And tibiofemoral joint forces were calculated through a two-dimensional biomechanical model. All right, so what does that mean? It means they took the forces that they measured and they applied it to a mathematical model that calculated these shearing forces, all right? Mm -hmm. And then they also looked at EMG activity in the quads and hamstrings in order to use that information as factors in the model. So those factors, the EMG magnitudes were fed into the model in order to help produce the outcomes. Right. So they're looking at how hard the muscles are contracting and putting that into the model to make an estimation of the forces on the joint. Correct. So those are the methods. And now if we look into the abstract, they're going to present our results as if mm -hmm. they're not already predictable. But Gigi, why don't you take us through the results of, of this All paper? All right, so to summarize quickly, the open kinetic chain condition, so open kinetic knee extension um, condition, produced a maximum shear force of 285 newtons at 30 degrees of knee flexion. The closed kinetic chain condition produced significantly lower shear forces at all angles, and the closed kinetic chain condition produced higher levels of muscle co-contraction at the same angles that the open kinetic chain condition produced the highest shear forces. So they were inverse to each other. Right. So there you have it. You have this significant shear force of 285 newtons. They mm -hmm. don't actually, in the abstract, they don't tell you what the shear forces were in the closed kinetic chain, but that they were significantly lower in all three knee angles, and that you had a lot of co-contraction in the closed chain, uh, and particularly at the time it, in the 30-degree condition when there are very mm -hmm. high shear forces in an open chain, you're getting a lot of co-contraction in the closed chain. The implication there being even if at 30 degrees you're subject to higher shear forces, the fact that you're getting a lot of co-contraction, which really means hamstring activation, mm -hmm. that hamstring is pulling in the opposite direction. So it helps to really mollify the amount of shear that's being generated. So they have what they say is their clinical relevance, which is the term they use in their paper. And that's their take-home message. And that is what? So 
to quote directly from the paper, they suggest that closed kinetic chain rather than open kinetic chain should be emphasized as a means of strengthening the muscles of the knee in athletes after injury to or reconstruction of the ACL. So essentially, you should focus on closed kinetic chain and um, minimize or avoid open kinetic chain. And there we have it. A study from the Mayo Clinic on ACL stress advocates closed kinetic chain over open kinetic chain. And that's it. Don't do open chain anymore. Forget knee extensions. But before we run for the exits, when we see a leg extension machine, let's read the fine print. Let's do it. And that's coming up right after this brief break. Okay, we're back. And we are about to dive into this paper, which has been affectionately known as the Lutz paper. And mm -hmm. before we do, just a couple of brief notes from their introduction. So I want to make sure that everybody's clear of things. I mentioned earlier that we had different definitions of closed chain and open chain. And mm -hmm. I want to just recite from their paper, their definitions of closed chain and open chain, and then very, very briefly mention how it differs from ours. We're going to devote a whole episode to this. So I don't want to yeah. get too far down the path with this thing. But the author's definition of open kinetic chain exercise is that the terminal segment, the terminal means at the end, which mm -hmm. you would imagine in the leg is the foot. The terminal segment is free to move, such as moving the foot during the swing phase of gait. So that's how mm -hmm. they define open chain. It's free to move through space. Or if you're sitting in a knee extension machine, you can just imagine your foot is dangling off the floor. It's not restrained into the ground. Right. Once you start pushing against the pad, though, I would question, are you still free to move? But that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. yeah, we'll yeah, get yeah, into yeah. that later. Yeah. Okay. And so how do they define closed kinetic chain, Gigi? So they define it that the terminal segment, again, if we're looking at the lower body, we would call that the foot, is fixed, such as in a squat. So again, imagine you're doing a squat, your feet are restrained to some degree into the ground, and they're not as free to move as they would be, again, if you were sitting in a knee extension machine and your foot was off the ground. And by the way, um, again, like we said, we're going to go way down the rabbit hole with explaining much more of this. But for anyone that does their own quick Google search, the, these authors' definitions are pretty consistent with what many people see as open and closed chain. They are indeed. I think those are the standard definitions. And certainly mm -hmm. in fitness circles and in conversations that I've had with people, physical therapists as well, that's exactly how they define it. If, if the terminal mm -hmm. segment's free to move around, it's open chain. If it's fixed, if it's in a fixed point and it can't move, it's closed chain. So yeah. that is their definition. Again, we'll devote an episode to this because it's, it's mm -hmm. worth having a, a big discussion around it. The other thing in their intro is they note the importance of quadricep strength. And look, you know, what happens after you tear your ACL, after you injure it or post-surgery, the first thing that happens is atrophy of the quadriceps, particularly the vasti, vastus medialis, vastus lateralis. 
they atrophy really quickly. And so we need to establish strength in those muscles. It's really important. And they say, and we quote, powerful quadriceps muscles are important for functional and athletic activities. So certainly they're recognizing the need to strengthen those muscles, but what they're really doing is questioning the methods by which we do that. And that's really the mm -hmm. whole purpose of this paper. So let's hold right. on to this thought and we can revisit it later when we get into our discussion. Yeah. All right. So what equipment did they use in order to do this? Okay. So they used uh, something you're not going to see in your typical gym every day, which is a Cybex 2 isokinetic dynamometer, which was uh, had a load cell. So PJ, can you translate that for everybody, what that actually is and what it kind of looks like? Yeah. So the Cybex 2... And I actually did a lot of work on this when I was working in orthopedic rehab. It's an isokinetic dynamometer. A dynamometer is a device that measures force. That's what it does. Okay. Mm -hmm. And an isokinetic dynamometer is one in which the speed of the device is regulated. And so isokinetic means at a constant velocity. And so what we mm -hmm. do with these is we set the, the max velocity on the machine and then the user pushes against the machine and cannot exceed the velocity that's set and then it measures the force at those different velocities. In this mm -hmm. case, there's no motion going on. Remember, these are isometric mm -hmm. contractions. So the machine is set with the input arm, which by the way, th this device looks just like a leg extension. So for anyone mm -hmm. who's trying to understand what we're talking about here, it's a seat just like a leg extension, it's got a back support and a seat, and it's got an, an arm with a pad at the end. And you sit in it just like a leg extension. What they do is fix the position of the arm for the open chain condition. You sit in it, and they'll have the arm set so that your knee starts at 90 degrees, or actually mm -hmm. is at 90 degrees, because again, it's not starting and changing, it's fixed at 90. Then they set it at 60, and then they set it so your mm -hmm. knee's at 30, and all you do is push against it as hard as you can, isometrically mm -hmm. and that's what it does okay and then so for the closed kinetic chain condition so um and by the way if you end up pulling the paper for yourself they don't have a picture of the open uh kinetic chain condition no in so, fact they don't even describe what they did so i did everyone i did our listeners the favor of actually <laughs> describing what you do when you're in the open kinetic chain condition they don't even yeah, tell you what would, what they did and frankly i was going to say if not for the benefit of being able to ask you this question, you know, when I was reading this paper on my own, I couldn't, based on the paper itself, um, I had a hard time envisioning how exactly they did the open chain condition. But anyway, for the closed chain condition, it looks slightly different. So this is, there's a, there's a mounted load cell on a device on a, on a foot plate. So there's that load cells under the foot plate and someone's knee is bent again in those same uh, degrees 90 60 30 and they're trying to just push straight down into this foot plate well yeah so what you need to do is they're, they're still doing it on this dynamometer which is a really interesting thing they what happens is this input arm is attached to the axis and the load cells are basically right around the axis so it's measuring the load it's really measuring torque that's being applied to that uh to the machine. But in order to create a closed chain condition, so imagine 
if you had a box in front of you and you were going to do a step up on the box, Mm -hmm. but instead of actually stepping up onto it, all you did was place your foot on it and push down on the box. Mm-hmm. That's yep. the condition that they were creating. Now, they had to use the same machine that they were using for the open kinetic chain condition. So what they did was they set this input arm to a horizontal position and then mounted a foot plate on it so that it actually functioned like a step. Then they put a load cell on top of that so that when you put your foot on it and press down on it, it would measure the load or the force that you're creating. But it's not a force plate. It's just a load cell. So all it does is measure the magnitude of the force you're generating, not the direction. It's not a vector. Mm -hmm. It's just the magnitude. Mm -hmm. So it's a scalar. And then they Mm -hmm. have a torque sensor in the knee. It's actually this mechanical device that's on the leg that is sensing the torque that's being created when you're doing this. And they compare the torque and the load cell they put those things together and feed that information into their 2D mathematical model in order to generate shear forces and, and measure the shear forces. So this is a very strange configuration, to be honest with you, but that's how they did it. Yeah, and one last thing is uh, to record the muscle activity. They had the surface EMG electrodes on the quads and hamstrings. Exactly. And then for their procedures, they did one testing session. And they had all the subjects come in and they exerted three maximum isometric contractions at each of those knee angles, 30 degrees, 60 degrees, Mm -hmm. and 90 degrees of knee flexion during each of those types of exercises. Now, I will say parenthetically, Mm -hmm. they also had the subjects in the open chain condition do a maximum knee flexion. We're not going to report on that because it doesn't really Mm -hmm. bear relevance to this particular conversation. Uh, But that's exactly what they did. And then from that, as I said, they took the information from the load cell, from this torque sensor for the closed kinetic chain condition. And then for the open chain condition, they just took the torque that was measured by the dynamometer and used that to feed into the biomechanical model. And Mm -hmm. from that, they calculated the moments and the uh, shear forces that were acting on the knee. Right. So the other thing is, and this is really important because the authors use this 2D model, this mathematical model to Mm -hmm. assume the force vectors, which were then factored into the calculations for shear forces. Now it's an Mm -hmm. assumption. This was not a force plate. And so they were not using an inverse dynamics biomechanical model. They were using a a very clever device, but they were assuming certain things which were fed into the model. And it's important to understand that as we go forward with this, because these results are not ironclad. And if someone wants to see exactly what we're talking about, the episode we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, which will come out uh, prior to this one, will show you exactly what a 3D force plate would, will do, which will show you that line of force, that force vector, which they did not use in this. They case. did not. So, so they had to make some assumptions to arrive mm-hmm. at what they thought was the ground reaction force vector on that closed kinetic chain. The open kinetic mm-hmm. chain is no assumption. It's a tangent to the limb. 
So the force is applied at a 90 degree angle to the limb. So that's easy to calculate. You just put that in, that angle goes right in. But for the close kinetic chain condition, they had to assume what that ground reaction force vector was. And so they're taking all those inputs and then making that assumption. Mm -hmm. And then statistically, this is comparing one condition to the next across all these three knee joint angles. But this is what we, it's called the paired T test, and it's just a test of means. Mm -hmm. They look at the mean of one, they compare it to the mean of the other, they see what the variability is, and then they determine if they're statistically different. The reason you use a mm -hmm. t-test here is because there are only five subjects. So it's what we refer to as a repeated measures design. Each subject was his or her, in the one case, own control. Each person did both conditions. That's repeated measures. But mm -hmm. there are only five of them, so there's not enough statistical power to run an analysis of variance, and so they do what's called a t-test, which is fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it works perfectly mm -hmm. well. Okay. okay, so now let's get to the results. All right, so for the open kinetic chain condition, so the ACL load, as we mentioned earlier, was 285 newtons, but with a standard deviation of uh, 120 newtons at 30 degrees of flexion. Um, at... 60 degrees of flexion, the ACL load was 160 newtons with a standard deviation of 53. And um, actually, there was a PCL load, uh, which again, for this conversation, not really relevant, but that was 387 with a standard deviation of uh, 67 newtons at 90 degrees. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. Once you get to 90 degrees of flexion in an open chain condition, the load's not on the ACL anymore. The load's on the PCL. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really interesting finding. And so the authors kind of allude to this in the study. They say, look, if you could do open chain leg work, quad work at 90 degrees, that's fine because you don't put any stress on the ACL. All the stress is on the PCL. So who cares? But mm -hmm. as they've correctly pointed out, that's 90 degrees of knee flexion. You're going to have very, very high patellofemoral compressive loads. Right. And that's going to irritate the patella which in ACL yeah. rehab is a serious consideration. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was an interesting true. finding. But yes, so the ACL was under load in the 30 and 60 degree conditions. And then what about the closed kinetic chain condition? What did they find there? So for the closed kinetic chain condition, there actually was an ACL load. So there's PCL load, uh, and it's from 516 to 538 newtons for all three joint angles. And the standard deviations were 392 476 and 165 for the 30, 60, and 90, respectively. So for um, the 30-degree condition, the standard deviation was 392. Yeah, so think about that. So the load on the PCL was between 516 and 538 newtons, but the standard deviations were 392, 476. Mm -hmm. The standard deviations in the open chain conditions were... 120 at max, which was, mm -hmm. you know, half of what it was in the closed chain. We'll talk about that in a minute because that's an interesting right. finding in and of itself. They did measure the EMG activity in the open kinetic chain. The max EMG of the quads was 68% MVC. So 68% of a maximum isometric contraction, which is how they're measuring it. They're not measuring mm -hmm. the amplitude value of the EMG signal. They're just looking at it relative to the maximum signal when you do an isometric contraction. And that occurred at 90 degrees. 
as probably expected. The maximum EMG of the hamstrings was 82% MVC, very high, but that was during the flexion exercise. So there was very low level hamstring activity during the extension exercise. And as they said, there was minimum antagonistic activity or co-contraction during open kinetic chain exercise. And then what about Mm -hmm. the closed chain? So for the closed chain, the max quad EMG was 63% of MVC at 90 degrees. Uh, The max hamstring EMG was 59% MVC at 30 degrees. And there were high levels of co-contraction at all angles. Yeah, so just pay attention to that hamstring EMG activity. 59% at 30 degrees of knee flexion. So there was minimum hamstring activity in the open chain exercise. But in the closed Mm -hmm. chain, this is almost 60% of MVC at 30 degrees of knee flexion. And again, the authors are suggesting that because of this, that's a high level of co-contraction. And that helps to stabilize the knee and mitigate any shear forces. But we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. in a little bit. So the conclusions were that shear is significantly lower during closed kinetic chain exercises. And they're saying that the P is 0.05. So the probability of any of these results occurring randomly is less than 5%. And of course, we accept that as a significant difference. There was a higher co-contraction during closed kinetic chain, reducing ACL stress. And shear forces at 30 and 60 degrees during open chain place substantial, I quote, substantial loads Mm -hmm. on the ACL. Note the use of the phrase substantial loads. That's very deliberate. Mm -hmm. Okay. We are sufficiently warned against using open chain exercise because of substantial loading of the ACL. Right. So the authors make it clear that they think substantial loads are being placed on the ACL. Like they said in that earlier uh, part of the paper where there's that paradox that as you, even though strengthening the knee from zero to 30 degrees can be helpful, especially for the quads, it can come at the cost of high loading of the ACL, and their study seems to prove that out. Okay, so stay away from open chain. Mm-hmm. All right, but before yeah. we accept this warning at face value, let's read the fine print, and we'll do that right after this. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. All right, PJ. So we went through the mechanics of the paper and it's a compelling argument. And especially, you know, when I read a paper, I try my best to look at it initially through the lens of the author. So, um, you know, they, the work they were doing, um, they were seeing these, they were observing um, these results. They had this idea about open chain versus closed chain. Now they did a study. The study seemed to suggest that what they thought might be happening could be happening. So, you know, it sounds like a fairly strong case if we were in a court of law and they were presenting um, their hypothesis and then their evidence to back it up. 
This is true, but you know what? We're going to dive in and start to reveal the fine print on this. And let's begin with the setup conditions. And in particular, these sort of strange closed kinetic chain conditions that they set up. And my question is, does it facilitate the acquisition of data? In other words, when we create an experiment, the experimental design and the methodology has to be designed in such a way that it allows us to collect the data that we want to collect. It's very important that we set it up that way, but it cannot determine or dictate the outcomes. And so one of the questions that I have about this particular arrangement of this device is, does this thing allow us to collect data objectively, or is it actually dictating the outcomes. So for example, as I said, when I was trying to describe it, imagine a box in front of you and you're going to do a step up. Well, if you do a step up on a box, you're going to push down Mm -hmm. into it and transfer your weight onto that foot and you're going to step up onto Mm -hmm. it. But in this case, they're not stepping up onto it. In this case, what all they're doing is pushing down into the foot plate to try to produce as much force as they can. Mm -hmm. And it may be difficult if they're not anchored. Mm -hmm. So imagine trying to push down on this box or step as hard as you can, but you've got nothing to hold on to while you're doing it. Can you really produce an effective amount of force that way? Can you produce as much force as possible that you can possibly produce that way? Um, And they don't mention the fact that the subjects were anchored or not. Right. So we don't know. For all we know, they could have been holding on to uh, a bar. They might have had someone's arm. They could have had nothing. They could have had hands on the hips. So they don't give us that information. And that's really, really significant. And And what makes it even more significant is that we have to assume, by the way they wrote the paper, that the subjects only had one practice trial. So typically in a paper when someone's doing a, you know, this is a fairly, you're not doing this exercise at home or in the gym on a daily basis. This is a weird clinical setup that you'll only see in a lab where they're measuring something like this. You can do a step up and it looks somewhat similar, but it's not. There's significant differences as you pointed out. So typically what we might see in a paper with something like this is they'll say the subjects came in uh, one day before the study they had 20 try you know something like that where we know they had a certain amount of practice so that would lead to to your point less variability about the outcome because at least we know they know what to do and i think on our very first episode PJ, we talked about how so many things that when we're looking at, we're we're trying to decipher what we're looking at with uh, a client or watching someone exercise is just, does the person understand what they're trying to do? And if you're doing something for the very first time, even if you get instructions on a weird machine like this, it may take more than one trial to get a feel for what you're trying to do. Yeah, there's a practice effect. Mm -hmm. There's a learning effect. And they weren't given the opportunity to try this. And you're right. Walking upstairs, sure, everybody's done it. Stepping up on a box on a curb, sure, everybody's done it. But it's not the same thing as just sticking your foot on a box and pressing down and not moving. Mm -hmm. It's like try pushing down and not letting yourself move. 
And so that's really an odd condition. And I agree with you. I think in this case, we would have seen more consistent results if they were given some practice. And this gets back to all of those high standard deviations that you were talking about a minute ago. The standard deviations in the closed kinetic chain condition were very high. And that's probably showing this variability of, of application or methods that these five subjects were applying while doing this. They were not consistently applying force to this plate. And so it's hard to imagine that the results are going to be very refined. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. The other part of this is, again, it was not a, it's not a 3D force platform. You didn't have three-dimensional load cells in there. You had single dimension load cell, which was only measuring magnitude. And that's really important because again, the authors were assuming what this force vector was and then using that assumed vector to make all the rest of their calculations. For all we know, they could have been way off. If someone's not pushing straight down, if somebody's pushing at an angle, Mm -hmm. who knows? I mean, that could have happened with every single one of the three repetitions that were applied at the different joint angles. And that leads to so much variability, which again is showing up in the standard deviation. Yeah, and I think we have to assume that that's true. And, um, you know, if you have one trial, and by the way, like they didn't say like we cued the subjects to push through the ball of their foot or push through the heel or push so. They're making the assumption, and if you read the paper, they've got a, a specific center of pressure where they believe the force is coming through in the foot, and that's what's creating bodily force. That's ultimately giving us the, the torque and moments. But um, again, to your point, we have no idea. Like, it's the first person on the first rep could have pushed through their heel, and maybe that hurt their knee or felt weird. And then the next time they did it, they pushed through the ball of their foot. And all of those things would significantly alter where that center of pressure is starting from. Absolutely. If you were pushing through your heel, you're more or less pushing straight down. If you were pushing through the ball of your foot, especially at, let's say, 60 degrees of knee flexion, you're pushing forward into that plate. So these are changing the ground reaction force vectors, and they have no way of knowing that based on this model. So that is an issue. Mm -hmm. Then there's this. They're using a static model. And... We understand that the trials were isometric, Mm -hmm. so they weren't moving. But the model that they're using, even though it's an isometric contraction, a static model doesn't fit. And here's why. When the knee joint angle changes, when you go from 90 degrees to zero, You don't only get rotation around the knee, you also get a linear translation of the tibia and the Mm -hmm. femur. So as the knee is extending, the tibia is not only rotating around the distal end of the femur, but it's also shifting forward. So it's moving linearly and rotating. Mm -hmm. Because of that, the center of rotation of the knee changes from position to position. Mm -hmm. And when the center of rotation changes, the quadricep moment arm also Mm -hmm. changes. So the moment arm is the distance from the quad tendon to the center of rotation. Mm -hmm. If that center of rotation changes its position, then the distance from the quad tendon to the center of rotation also changes. Mm -hmm. 
they use the static model. And in that static model, the center of rotation remains static or constant. Mm -hmm. And the moment arm, the quad moment arm remained constant. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't when you actually move the knee. So they didn't correct for the change in that moment arm and therefore they didn't calculate torques accurately at the knee and therefore they didn't calculate shear force correctly during the closed kinetic chain conditions or the open chain mm -hmm. for that mm -hmm. matter. So to be fair, um, so I've heard what you've described in the knee is what's called an instantaneous axis of rotation, meaning that as the joint moves, the axis of rotation in the condyles of the femur are moving too. So, so if someone hearing this, to be fair, it's not like in when you straighten your knee, it's moved eight inches back, and then when your knee is bent, it's coming twelve inches. Yeah, oh, I hope it's, not. It, you know, we're talking about very <laughs> subtle changes. But to your point, if you're doing a research study, I think um, what they could have done, PJ, and correct me if I'm wrong, is just simply for the thirty, sixty, ninety, still use the static model, but just adjust for the axis. Well, that's what they should have done. Right. They could have used the static model, but they need to change the axis of rotation, the position of the center of rotation, and the length of the quadricep moment arm had to be changed in order to match the conditions of those knee joint angles. Had they done that, then they would have gotten accurate mm -hmm. results, but they didn't do that, and so the results are very suspect. Well, and, and that's an yeah, issue. Accurate to the point with the caveat, which we just described, that we can't with any reasonable assurance know where the center pressure was coming in through the foot. Right, in the closed chain. Now, in the open chain, we right. do know. So for the open chain condition, they would have had a, a more mm -hmm. accurate reading for mm -hmm. sure. Closed chain, you're right. We, we still have some things which are indeterminate, and that is what... The next concern that I have with it in this biomechanical model, the authors state, quote, since the number of unknown forces exceeded the equations available in the static force analysis, the solution was indeterminate. The calculation was based on level of muscle activation. So explain that to us. Yeah, so they don't know exactly where and how much these forces are. And so what they have is a statically indeterminate model. Indeterminate means can't be determined. Mm -hmm. So by looking at the forces coming off this, this little foot plate, the load cell, and this torque sensor, they were, again, assuming that they were going to have a certain force vector, but it was indeterminate. They couldn't do it. So what they did instead was they looked at the EMG of the muscles sort of figured out, well, this is how hard the muscles are contracting on a relative mm -hmm. basis, and so this is how much force is being applied into the system, and they use that as maybe a correction factor to try to increase the accuracy of the calculation. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like mm -hmm. that. I don't think that's the way you do these things because EMG activity and force, especially the output force of the limb, those are not necessarily correlated, but they're using that in this model because of this statically indeterminate force factor. And that's a problem. Um, here's another thing that I have. If you look at this paper, they don't actually tell you how much force was produced. I mean, this is, a, this is actually really interesting to me. They're talking about all these forces that are being generated but they don't 
report how much force was produced. They could have, by the way, with the open chain, but they can't really with the closed chain. So they just don't put it in the paper, which, wait a minute, that's like, this is, this is strange. They, we do know about EMG activity, right? So, um, but that's not necessarily the forces resulting from the test conditions, but we do have EMG activity to go by. Well, we do, but here's the problem. And, and this is, let's think about this. They're saying that there is significantly more shear force in the open chain condition. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's just throw an argument out there. Let's say in the open chain condition, they produced, oh, I don't know, 200 newtons worth mm -hmm. of force. All right. And then they created a certain amount of mm -hmm. shear. And then let's say in the closed chain condition, they produce 50 newtons worth of force. And they produce significantly less mm -hmm. shear. Well, of course, because they had a quarter of the force that was being mm -hmm. produced. So really, when you're looking at the shear forces that are generated, you have to look at it relative to the amount of input force, right? What's the input into the system? This is a function, right? The function is you input force, the output is shear, right? They're giving you the output, but they're not telling you what the input was. And so if in a closed condition, because of this model and the strange way that people were stepping on this plate, if the input was a very low level of force, then it stands to reason that the output is going to be a low level of shear. Mm -hmm. If the input on the open chain condition is significantly greater, then it's reasonable that you would get a greater shear. So the thing is, they don't tell you how much force was being generated in either condition. And I think that's an omission, which is problematic. Yeah, and so to be clear, what you're saying is that even though we know, so they did a, um, an MVC, a maximum, maximum volitional contraction, and then we know the percentage, the EMG is telling us the percentage of what, how close they're getting to that MVC in the, in the different um, joint angles. We can't extrapolate that information into the forces on the that might be placed on the ACL, the shearing forces. Well, I mean, that's true. But what I'm really saying is they don't report about absolutely how much force was created when they were doing these movements or these conditions, right? When they were sitting in the machine in the isokinetic dynamometer and pushing against the pad, they don't tell you how much force they produced. Mm -hmm. When they were standing on the foot plate in the closed chain condition at 60 degrees of knee flexion, and they're pushing down into this foot plate, they don't tell right. you how much force was being produced. This has nothing to do with muscles. Well, it does because the muscles contract to, create the, to help create the force, but they're just not reporting on the force itself. Forget about the EMG. It's, there's no report of the force. So for all we know, the force generated during the open chain condition could have been five mm -hmm. times greater than the closed chain condition. And that certainly would explain the difference in shear force. Yeah. And, you know, just from someone like myself, that's not a research scientist. When you think about it practically, yeah, probably. I mean, you know, if you know nothing about either of these exercises and one, you're sitting in a chair, you're braced and you're just trying to, you know, it's pretty obvious what you're trying to do. Just push into this bar versus you're standing on this weird platform and by the way again if someone reads the paper you'll see they've got that brace that's uh going on the side of their leg that's measuring the torque and we don't know if their upper body was um 
was anchored whatsoever. So, I mean, I think just practically without having any bias, it stands to reason that um, between those two conditions, it would be highly likely to me that the closed kinetic chain, you know, it just would be a lot harder to produce force. Yeah, there's no way that you can produce maximal force without stepping up onto the footplate. Mm -hmm. And they were not instructed to step up onto the footplate because then that would have been an isotonic contraction. Right, that's a great point. So yeah. in order to keep in, in order to keep it isometric, they couldn't step up onto it. So there's no way they could produce yeah. as much force as they could have in the open chain condition. And therefore, you have an apples to yeah. oranges comparison. I mean, this is definitely biased in favor of the outcome that they got. Yeah, really good point. And, you know, we mentioned this variability, and I, and I want to bring that up once again because the standard deviations in the open chain group range from 53 to 120 newtons. So, you know, given that the max value is 285 newtons, you know, 120 is less than 50%, but on, on average, it's about 42% of the mm -hmm. mean. So the standard deviation was about 42% of the mean. But in the closed chain, the, those standard deviations range from 165 to 476 yeah. newtons, upwards of 88% of the mean value. The variability was 88% of the mean. I mean, it just tells you that they had no control over the way people were applying force into that footprint. Right. And again, you know, we think that the, the limit of practice trials may have been, you know, one of the biggest factors here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's part of it. And and had they practiced more, maybe they would have gotten more consistency. And certainly we could all go back and try that if that's really what we want to do. But at face value, there's just too much variability here. Um, then, you know, look, they, they were talking about the PCL. PCL loading during the closed kinetic chain trials were fairly consistent with another analysis of similar activity. So in their defense... And I'm not going to pick on them in this case. I'm actually supporting some of their findings. There was a study done by Escamilla and colleagues, and this was a lunge mm -hmm. study. And they were looking at what they referred to as short step and mm -hmm. long step lunges. So this gets into what we were discussing last week with knee behind the toe or knee over mm -hmm. the toe, past the toe. And they also showed very, very high levels of PCL loading in those conditions. So in... Lutz's defense here, we do see some consistent measures like that in other studies. So I don't want to be totally critical. I think that there are some findings here that are valid and consistent with some mm -hmm. other things. Okay, cool. But um, let's not forget those EMG findings because this is a big point that they make, the fact that there are high levels of co-contraction in the closed chain condition, particularly at 30 degrees of knee flexion. Right. And that's one of the prevailing arguments to this day as to why you should do closed chain versus open chain. It's this level of co-contraction and the compression that offers to stabilize the joint um, that you may not see in an open chain condition. That's right. And so there are a couple of things that I would have to say about that. First of all, speed of contraction has a lot mm -hmm. to do with this. And there's a lot of research that supports this, but even in an isometric condition, if you were to go into a slow ramp up isometric condition or isometric contraction, you'll most likely see very little antagonist activity, right? So it's mostly agonist, in which case there would be low co-contraction. 
But if you do very rapid onset isometric contractions, you see high degrees of co-contraction, right? So the faster you go, the more co-contraction you get, even if it's isometric. Yeah. So if you get into these very rapid twitch-like contractions, you do see high levels of antagonist activity, co-contraction. Mm -hmm. The authors make no mention in this study of how rapidly their subjects ramped up the tension in those isometric knee extensions. Yeah. And, you know, we spoke about this in a dynamic condition with actually your uh, dissertation work. But I think the key takeaway there is that even if it's isometric, and this goes back to uh, a discussion we had with David Bame, I think our first discussion with him is that it's the intention that, you know, you can habituate to it. But if your intention is to move really rapidly, that's what sets up the initial neuromuscular conditions. And to your point, yeah, you can see a lot of co-contraction. If it's your, if you are cued to push on that bar as fast and hard as you can, you'd see a very different result than someone just saying, push into this bar. That's right. Absolutely. And that is not disclosed here. It's not mentioned. I'm, in fact, I don't think they controlled for rate of tension development. And I think that is an omission. Um, and certainly if someone were reproduce this study, I would factor mm -hmm. that in. Then there's this, and, and this is what I, I started to just picture this setup in my mind's eye, and I thought, wait a minute. So imagine when we're doing this closed chain condition, mm -hmm. all right? Let's reimagine. Yeah. We're going to put our foot up on a box in front of us. Now, I say in front of us because this is the 30-degree knee angle mm -hmm. now. So you put your foot up on the box, and what you need to do, if it's a box or if it's their foot plate, what you need to do is now hop back away with your stance leg. Imagine you're standing close to the foot plate. Mm -hmm. You put your foot up on it. Your knee's at like 90 degrees of mm -hmm. knee flexion at that point. What do you need to do to get your knee to 30 degrees of knee flexion? You back away from the foot plate and you keep backing away until your knee is at a 30 degree angle. So now the position of that leg is out in front mm -hmm. of you. Try to picture that in your mind's eye. Your foot's up on this foot plate. You've backed away from it in order to get your knee to a 30-degree angle. And so your body's, I don't know, a foot, two feet away from it as your leg is up on the foot plate in front of you. And then you're asked to push down into the foot plate. How are you going to do that? Which muscles do you have to use in order to be able to apply force down into the plate when your knee is almost completely extended. So you're saying from that condition that the unconscious bias would be to just try to keep extending my hip versus extending my knee through the quads? That's it. If you want to apply force with your leg down into that plate, when your knee is only flexed to 30 degrees, it's near terminal extension, in the body position that you're in, the only way to do it is not to try to extend your knee. You got to try to extend your hip. So you're going to pull from your hip down into the plate. And the muscles that are going to do that are your glutes and hamstrings. Well, they're not measuring glute function here. They do have an EMG yeah. electrode on the hamstrings. So we do see some quad. Uh, there's definitely some quad activity in that closed chain condition for 30 degrees. But it is definitely less than the hamstrings. And people, if they read the paper, uh, it's the graph on the bottom of page 
page 736. So there is quad activity, but it's less than the hamstrings. It's less than the hamstrings. Mm -hmm. So the point is, in that condition, in that position, it's the hamstring that is actually pulling the leg down onto the foot plate, not the quads and hamstrings working together to push down. It's more like you're trying to do a hip extension exercise, pushing your leg down onto that foot plate, and that's what's activating the hamstrings. Mm. So that when I said earlier that the setup conditions dictate the outcome, mm -hmm. this is an example of that. At 30 degrees, that setup requires you to extend your hip, pull with your hamstrings in order to create force, and that's what's creating the co-contraction that they are measuring there. In fact, you get more hamstring contraction than quadricep contraction. And it's not because of it being closed chain, it's because of that particular joint angle and body position during the closed chain that's causing that outcome. Right, and we know that quad activation um, has a relationship to increased stress on the ACL. Um, so the first fine print we did where we went over the Santana paper, so that was pretty obvious. If people can remember or if they haven't listened to it yet, that was one, they were looking at a, a, a cable press versus a bench press, and they were comparing one arm versus two arms in a bench press. So to anyone reading that, I think that's pretty obvious that, hey, like this is not apples to apples. This, PJ, mm -hmm. is, a, is a lot more subtle. So without, you know, doing a fine print episode like this, I'm not sure that, you know, that would be an obvious result to people. No, I think, you know, I looked at this paper several times and then ultimately I sort of smacked myself in the head and said, wait a minute, how is it that somebody is even able to do this particular action? How can you get your leg in that position with a knee joint angle of 30 degrees, apply force down into the plate, don't lift yourself up onto the plate, but the only way you could do it is by pulling from mm -hmm. the hip. And so what they've done is create a condition that dictated an outcome. Mm -hmm. And it's notable here because it's at the same joint angle where they're suggesting you've got this substantial load acting on the PC and the ACL uh, during open chain. So, you know, I thought that this was a serious issue. And a lot of people looking at something like this, you know, they're not necessarily going to pick mm -hmm. up on these things. You know, and again, these were the people responding to this paper were not lay people. Mm -hmm. These were medical doctors and physical mm -hmm. therapists. And of course, this filtered down into the fitness mm -hmm. industry. And, and again, this is the paper that launched, <laughs> you know, launched a thousand hysterical people. So, um, yeah, there is, you know, there is a problem here. And that's why we do this episode, the fine print, because we need to address these mm -hmm. things. So I want to focus on the key part to me. The key part of this thing was substantial load. Yeah, because that sounds scary. When the author said that open chain exercise places a substantial load on the ACL, and I have to ask, wait a minute, what is substantial load mean. Mm -hmm. And this really, other than these other things that we've been picking on here, to me, 
this is the most significant part of the findings of this study and the fact that goes overlooked in almost everybody I speak to regarding this kind of stuff. Right. Now, I think, so if you're going to use the term substantial load, at a minimum, we would need to know some percentage value. So, you know, what makes something substantial? So just because something could be 200 newtons, we have no idea what that is in uh, respect to whatever this tissues or this uh, object's stress capacity is. So we have to know, which the authors don't give us, um, what the percentage value of these four of these stresses of the ACL are compared to what the maximal tensile strength of the ACL would be. Right. In other words, put in very simple terms, substantial relative to mm -hmm. what? You know, we we when we say something substantial, we need something to compare it mm -hmm. to. Right? Just looking at it all by itself, it may seem like 285 newtons, man. Yeah. Oh my God, that's outrageous. Right. But 285 newtons compared to what? And to your point, the question is, how does 285 newtons compare to the maximum tensile strength of the ACL? Because that's the issue mm -hmm. here. The issue isn't really whether closed chain and open chain have different shear stresses acting on the ACL. The real issue is, so what if they do? How much is it relative to what the ACL can tolerate? And there is a paper that we've put in our show notes. It's by Wu and colleagues. It's published in 1991. Mm -hmm. So this information was available to the authors when they did this study. And that they found that the maximum tensile strength of the ACL is what, GG? 2,160 newtons. 2,160 mm -hmm. newtons. In other words, you have to apply 2,160 newtons to the ACL before you impose strain on the ACL. This study found that open chain imposes 285 newtons. Mm -hmm. 285 out of a maximum of 2,160. Mm -hmm. So what's the percentage there? So that's a whopping 13.2%. And I might just add, ironically, uh, people that have had ACL reconstruction, the tensile strength of the ACL actually goes significantly up. It, I've seen it reported as 4,000 newtons for a repaired ACL. Yeah, for a certain yeah. period of time. And so, you know, this is why looking at these papers and going into mass hysteria because they found that one thing is greater than another is really inappropriate because the better question here is, all right, 285 newtons on the ACL. So what? 13% of maximal capacity. You're not going to tear your ACL by putting a stress of 13% of its maximum capacity on it. In fact, Come on, people. Who's ever seen anyone tear an ACL on a leg extension machine? I mean, come on. So therein lies the problem. And, you know, the, it's the analogy that I often use here is that I can hold more water in a coffee mug than in a thimble. Mm -hmm. So there's significantly more water in that mug than in the mm -hmm. thimble, but I'm not going to drown in the That's mug. That's right. 
And so, yes, there's more stress on your ACL and open chain than closed chain, but you're not going to tear your ACL and open chain because you're only imposing 13% of the max load on the ACL. So big deal. Right. And by the way, I've seen some studies that look at walking and walking uh, at a certain point in the gait cycle is somewhere around 10 to 13% of ACL strain as well. So, so it is comparable to mm-hmm. walking. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've been, I've been fighting against this whole thing for so long. It's like most of my gray hair comes from arguing with people that leg extensions are actually good for you. And I do think that people are starting to wake up and warm up to the fact that they should be doing this. Because in my opinion, when you've got atrophy in the muscle group like that, uh, if you're trying to strengthen your quadriceps, there's no better way to do it than on a leg extension yeah. because it avoids any compensatory actions that could help to extend mm-hmm. the knee, forces the quads to do mm-hmm. the work. And so it, to me, it's really good. And by the way, I can reveal this now years mm-hmm. later. Um, I did leg extensions with every single one of my ACL patients, every single so one. even after you were one of the people at this, you know, uh, historic event where they presented this paper, you went back to your clinic, maverick and all, and still did knee extensions. Especially because I'm <laughs> absolutely we did and knee what, extensions. Now the doctors, yeah, the doctors extend? wouldn't call them knee extensions, right? The doctors they were afraid to use the term knee extension or leg extension, so they called them knee bends. <laughs> but was it really that drastic? Like, if you can remember back in real time, was it really like? A month, because I remember like early in my career, I actually went to see Juan Carlos Santana, the guy who authored the paper we just mentioned. Um, and, you know, he was literally like talking about standing on a stability ball and doing all the stuff. And like, you know, the day before all of us were like basically bodybuilders. And then the next day, like everyone in the gym was standing on a stability ball doing, you know, lateral shoulder raises and so it, in my mind, at least when I think back to it, it was an immediate, you know, shift in terms of perspective. Do you remember it being something like that? It was pretty sudden that one moment this was okay. And the next moment uh, was taboo. It was really amazing that this paper had such an impact on the way people thought and, and what they did. And, you know, again, the physical therapist walked away saying, okay, no more open chain, no more leg mm-hmm. extensions. And, and that filters very quickly into fitness because physical therapists do have an influence on the way people think in the fitness industry. And rightly so for good reason, but not in this mm-hmm. case. I mean, this just created mass hysteria and it was a mistake. So that is the fine print as it relates to LUTs. GG, what really matters here? All right. Well, first of all, the benefit of doing these episodes with you is that, you know, I, I have to go through the paper with you like several, several times. And my own biases get revealed as I keep going through this paper because I read something one way, then we talk about it, and my mind changes a bit. So this was a study done on people that had recent ACL injury or recent ACL reconstruction. And they, I think we're trying to give guidelines for the rehab of those people. So your typical person that's walking in the gym to exercise, avoiding the knee extension for the fear of shear, it doesn't add up. 
this study has no application to that kind of person. Yeah, I think it's important to always keep in mind that there is an intention behind these studies. And when we take it and expand it to things that are unrelated, we're now creating problems. Yeah. Right. The initial intent is no longer applied and we've just created new rules for these outcomes, which I agree with you is not an appropriate thing to do. Right. And so now here's another thing. So the authors mentioned that um, deeper in the paper, they actually give um, ACL stress values of 400 to 500 newtons that they say is basically what's happening when you're starting to do some strenuous sporting activity. So we know, based on this study, if we take it at face value, that even with the standard deviation, that a knee extension at 30 degrees at worst would come somewhere close to that. So if you were actually an individual that had ACL injury or ACL surgery, and um, or you were a therapist or medical professional working with someone or even a trainer working with someone in that condition, let's say, based on the guidelines, after about nine weeks post-surgery, isn't that exactly what you would want to do in a training session? So to your point, if you use a knee extension, you're not imposing stresses from other planes. It's really just a sagittal plane exercise. And so wouldn't you want to start to carefully load, put load on that ligament in a way that you could really control and at least you can control for the, the direction that the forces are coming in? So to me, it's actually, they're making a case why it would be an ideal thing to do, maybe not the day after surgery, but based on the guidelines, somewhere about nine weeks after the surgery, you'd actually want to start knee extension so you can start preparing that ligament for the stresses that are going, you're going to place on it. Even if you're someone that's just like my, you know, you're not necessarily a professional athlete, just someone that, you know, walks around, moves around, exercises. So... I think they're actually proving the case why you would want to use that in your post-rehab training. Yeah, so jettison the sheer of fear and do the things that you need to do to condition the body to deal with stress, which is ultimately what we want to do. When the body can't deal with stress, that's when it breaks down. So let's impose those stresses in a careful, measured way so that we can improve someone's tolerance. Yeah, that's basically Absolutely. the point of training. And PJ, here's the bomb drop. I wish we had a better uh, sound effect board here, but here, here's a bomb drop. So you want to hear something crazy? Yeah, tell me. You don't tear any... I always want okay. to hear something this crazy. This is going to blow your mind. Actually, Uh-oh. You, you might have thought of this before. But here's the deal, folks. You don't tear an ACL in the open chain. So the way you tear an ACL is actually in the way that these authors define it, in the closed chain. So an ACL tear comes from your foot is restrained on the ground. Your femur, the relationship between your femur and tibia, there's a rotation. There's what's called knee valgus typically. And there is some, you're fairly somewhere close to knee extension. So it's the combination of those stresses and typically the acceleration, how quickly those stresses are happening. That's how you tear your ACL. So we actually, or at least I did, I tried to look for papers that showed an ACL tear in an open chain. If any of our listeners can find one, please send it to us because I cannot find a paper that exists of someone actually tearing an ACL in the open chain. <laughs> so the thing we're warned against doing has not 
been shown to be actually damaging, yet when people do tear it is in the That's closed right. chain. So let's not do the closed <laughs> kinetic chain. Let's do no closed kinetic chain because by golly, that's going to you know, rupture the ACL. Right. So, you know, that is, <laughs> those are really interesting insights, Gigi. For me, uh, there are a couple of things that I would say just what really matters. One is don't conflate statistical significance with practical significance. And that's one thing we learned from this study that the shear force at the knee was statistically greater in the open chain condition, Mm -hmm. but practically insignificant. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to be concerned about. So sometimes we see these p-values and we see the word that says significant, and everybody's saying, oh, no, like do it or don't do it. it. It may have nothing to do with it. These are statistical measures, and in this case, a statistically significant finding was practically meaningless. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful with that. Apply some logic and reason to practical settings, right? I mean, regardless of what we're doing, whether it's open or closed or anything else in between, let's just apply some reason, some logic, some rationale, um, common sense. And more often than not, I think we're going to end up in a good Mm -hmm. place. And then don't just read the numbers. And this is part of the reason why we do this episode. Don't just read the numbers. Ask some questions. Do some digging. When you read a paper and it says this is damaging to the ACL, go look around and go find out what is damaging to the ACL and then see the comparison between Mm -hmm. those. In other words, let's try to think for ourselves a little bit because when we do that, we'll end up with better outcomes for ourselves, for our clients, for everybody Mm -hmm. around us. So it is amazing to look at this one paper and see how that's filtered, you know, even 30 years later. Um, It is quite astonishing. It is. And I think it's as meaningful now as it was back then. So with that, Gigi, that wraps up this episode. We want to thank our listeners. Again, I'm Paul Juris, and I thank you all for listening and bearing with us and Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. Gigi, any final last words? Uh, nope. Just thanks, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, again, give us feedback. Let us know uh, if there's a study you'd like us to do next. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our round table? What's the round table? Well, It's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group, the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.